Our passage for the preaching today is Judges chapter 9, as we continue to make our way through this book, verse by verse, story by story. Fair warning here, uh, this is a long chapter, there is a lot to read here, it's the longest chapter in the book of Judges, but there is absolutely no way we could break this up, and so... We're going to cover it all today. I encourage you, if you're able, to um, pull out a copy of God's Word and follow along. If you're able, there's so many details here. Page 267, if you're using a pew Bible. <clears throat> Last week, we wrapped up the study of Gideon, or so we thought. As we see today, at the end of Gideon's life, where he denied the offer to be king, but then proceeded to live like a sultan, those actions had continuing ramifications into the next generation. The sins of the father follow after, and that's what we see today with Abimelech. Really a continuation of the Gideon narrative. Abimelech is not one of the judges in this book, He's really more of an anti-judge. He falls right in the middle of the 12 judges uh, in this book. And he's really, as we will see, kind of a test case for the kingship in Israel. A test case that, unfortunately, does not turn out well. But let's turn to the text, and we are going to read it section by section, uh, picking it up as we go along. So we'll begin by just reading the opening few verses of this story. Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Brethren, this is God's word. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives. And he said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the years of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your, your bone and flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Aphra and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. Seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all, and, and all Beth Melo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Amen. This is God's word. Bow with me again as we pray. Father, we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us your word, that we might live in you and you in us. Help us this hour, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we're all familiar with the common, well-known theory that the fall of the mighty Roman Empire came not because of external opposition, but that Rome was finally undone by vast internal corruption. As opposed, as we look at various world powers down through the years, the same could be said of them as well. I I think of the fall of Soviet Union, for example. The fact is, whether we're talking about a powerful nation or an unrivaled organization or, or even a local church, The greatest and most dangerous threats often come from within. We saw this at the end of Gideon's life last week. He could deliver Israel from her external threats, right? The Midianites. But ultimately, he could not rescue them from their greatest enemy, themselves. And the sin that so deeply plagued them. And so it's no surprise then, as we come to this story in Gideon's son, that what appeared in seed form in Gideon now blossoms into a full-blown crisis 
The cracks in the foundation appeared before, but now the building really starts to crumble with Abimelech. This is a story of Israel devouring herself from the inside out. And this is because the ultimate problem, sin and idolatry, still has not been addressed. However, as we approach it today, I want to ask you, what makes this story different than looking at the fall of the Roman Empire, for example? I mean, if, if we were to compare, you know, kind of the fall of Israel to the fall of Rome, uh, no doubt we would see some similarities, right? Power grabs, quest of revenge, factions and civil war that starts verbally and then, of course, physically. What then does Israel's story particularly have to teach us about these things? Well, at the risk of being overly simplistic or the risk of being overly repetitive, I keep coming back to this again and again in the book of Judges, it all has to do with God, right? We can look at human history and we're often blind to the cause and effect of things. We talked about this uh, on Wednesday night Bible study, if you were here. The Great Fire of London in 1666 and all of the different theories for why God sent this fire that consumed 60% of the city. We can look at that, but we can't really know why God sent the fire. We don't know in a particular situation whether God is punishing uh, sin specifically. We don't know why it is they ultimately they crumble and fall. We can't ascribe the actions of God to particular historical situations because we cannot peer into the mysteries that belong to Him alone. Except in the case of Israel. Things are different when we read of the history of Israel. Things are different because here we have God's divine commentary on these events. We see God in action behind the scenes. And we hear Him explain why it is that He brought these things about. From this perspective, we are truly to see, or we are to see history truly as His story. The history of Israel as His story. The history being a means by which He reveals Himself. He communicates to us His ways, His nature, His character, the divine goal that He's working everything toward. And so when we look at this story from this perspective, what we see is that this is a story that tells us, that declares to us, that shouts to us about God's divine justice. That's what's on display. We're going to see here that at the end of the day, you reap what you sow. We're going to see that God uses the plots of the wicked, or excuse me, causes the plots of the wicked to return back on their own heads. Literally. We're going to see how God uses sometimes evil to punish evil. And how he often rewards evil with more evil so that eventually evil consumes itself. I'm not talking here about, you know, a pagan notion of karma. I'm talking specifically about how God brings the curses of the covenant to bear upon his people here. And in this, we are to see God's perfect justice, his unwavering standard of righteousness, and we are to be assured that. He will one day render to each one of us according to our deeds. It's only against this backdrop of perfect justice then will we then really see and appreciate and long for the true King, the ultimate Deliverer, Jesus Christ. And then will we, only then will we seek Him to deliver us and rescue us from this righteous judgment that we deserve. So with this in mind, this 
retributive justice of God that's on display in this passage, I want to walk through the story. And I've got four general headings here to help make sense of what's going on, but let me just warn you ahead of time, there's a lot of details and we don't have time to talk about all the details. And so I'm going to let the text do a lot of the talking. I'm just going to narrate along the way and then come back and try to bring this all together. But the first thing to kind of organize our thoughts here in uh, verses 1 through 6 is this. Even in times of great evil, God is still in control and is still working His salvation. Even in times of great evil, God is still in control and He is still working His plan of salvation. And so as we consider this, verses 1 through 6, as I mentioned before, Abimelech is a continuation of the Gideon story. At the end of chapter 8, we were told that Gideon had a concubine in Shechem. He bore, she bore him a son, and Gideon named him Abimelech, which literally means, my father is king. So wonder then that as we now turn to chapter 9, we're told right away that this son who's named, my father is king, now has aspirations for the throne. And this is what we find as Abimelech goes to his mother, he goes to the leaders of Shechem, and he says, look, Gideon had 70 sons, but wouldn't it just be so much easier if just one of them ruled? And by the way, wouldn't you want this one to come from your own tribe? You know, your own flesh and blood rather than from somebody else? It's a good argument, you have to admit. But right away, as we're faced with this, we must be asking, okay, what are his qualifications for being a king? We've seen already, it's not just a king or a leader that Israel needs, but they need the right kind of king. That's what the entire book of Judges is about. Israel's need for the right kind of king. It lays the groundwork. For the kingship to follow in the in in, in uh, first, second Samuel and beyond. So in this respect, anointing a king or even installing a leader should never be a matter of expediency, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. It is a man's character and qualifications that fit him to be a leader, not family ties. Not what seems easiest, not just the bare fact that, hey, we really need a leader. Oh, here's a guy right here. Let's give him the job. But the leaders in Shechem are foolish. And in fact, they're disobedient to God. They agree to make him king. That sounds like a great idea. And immediately they give him uh, these royal provisions to secure the throne. In verse 4, we read that they take 70 pieces of silver out of Baal's temple shrine. This is pagan money. Again, it's showing us where their true allegiance lies, right? Abimelech takes this money and he hires some local riffraff. You know, it's described here as empty and worthless men. These are men literally without purpose, without standing, aimless. He hires these men and he proceeds then to systematically butcher his own brothers so that nobody else can stake a claim to the throne. Verse 5, we read that he did this all on one stone. Not only is that a detail that we ought to keep in mind, it will appear again at the end of the story, but this is so calculated and systematic. On one stone... It's methodical slaughter. It it mimics the pagan practices of fratricide, if I'm saying that right. Fratricide, right? Killing your own brothers to secure the throne. And the result then, in verse 6, when he does this, with the approval of the leaders at Shechem, is that they came together and they made him king. This is tribalism in the worst respect. It was, maybe to put it in modern terms, secession. An act of secession from the union, right? A declaration of independence from the rest of the nation. 
a complete renunciation of the Lord, the covenant, the unity of the, of the, of the uh, nation of Israel. Great act of sin. And yet, in all this blood and treachery, a complication arises. In verse 5, we read that Jotham, Gideon's youngest son, escapes. Here I think it's noteworthy that the author refers to Gideon by his surname, Jerubael. Remember before, Jerubael literally means he contends with Baal. That was Gideon's name after he tore down the Baal altars of Baal. And then he went to battle with Baal in the field against the Midianites. And that's what the author wants us to see here as well. That's why he refers to his name. How do we know this? Well, the, the leaders of Shechem, that designation literally reads the Baals of Shechem. It perhaps denotes their um, um, spiritual status in Shechem. They were the Baals of Shechem, the leaders, the spiritual leaders. And of course, the money for this slaughter came from Baal's temple as well. And so, here with Gideon, through his youngest son, Jotham, he is continuing continuing to contend with Baal, Abimelech. In this big picture of things, this is nothing less than the seed of the woman continuing to wage war against the seed of the serpent. Just like Pharaoh tried to wipe out this seed and kill all the males in Egypt, Moses escapes and delivers the people of Israel. Just like Herod tried to wipe out the male children in Jerusalem, Jesus escapes and delivers the Israel of God. And in the very same way here, Abimelech is that Antichrist figure. He is trying to stamp out God's people, but the Lord preserves a remnant. A seed escapes, and it's through Jotham, as we will see, that Israel will be saved. So this is great evil here. Slaughter. And yet God is still in control. He is still working His salvation for His people. And this, brethren, is a great comfort to us. When we look around and it seems like evil is winning the day. When lawlessness reigns, God has not forgotten His people. He has not forgotten you. And He is still working all things towards His ultimate goal, towards His ultimate plan, and He will save His own. So what happens then with this complication with Jotham? Well, secondly, we see this. God sends a prophet to tell us what He's going to do before He does it. God sends a prophet to tell us what He's going to do before He does it. Here, I want you to read with me this lengthy section, verses 7 through 21. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top, on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the king trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you, 
and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not... Let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Melo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Melo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So how does God, excuse me, how does the son that God preserved react to this kind of declaration of war by his older brother Abimelech. Jotham goes out and he finds the biggest, tallest pulpit in the land and he lets it fly. Mount Gerizim, he mounts up and he preaches. He proclaims, he prophesies. And this is something we've seen before a few weeks ago. We saw uh, with Gideon himself, God's acts and salvation always begin with a prophet speaking. In redemption, God always tells us what he's going to do before he then does it. And he does this so that we know, so that all the earth knows that he is the Lord. This is a common refrain all throughout the prophets. I'm going to bring judgment on this city. Then they will know that I am the Lord, he says over and over again. And of course, this is no different in our day as well. Even on an individual level, faith, God's act of conversion, redemption in the heart of individuals begins or comes through the preaching of God's Word. Faith comes by hearing. It is the Word of God that precedes the acts of God. So this is what happens here. Jotham calls Israel to hear him, and he proceeds to tell them a prophetic parable. Now as we consider this, I want to stress that this is a parable. Uh, We can't press the details too far. In a parable, the main point of the parable is the main point. And a lot of the details are just extra stuff served to illustrate the main point. So the main point of this is that this parable of the trees is the most gifted, the most qualified, the most fit of leaders normally do not strive to exalt themselves to the office. Rather, they're content with where they're at. Shall I leave this and this of what I'm doing? But the bramble bush, which is a small little thorn bush, possessing a low place in the community, not contributing anything, tends to be looked at or tends to be seen as purposeless, right? These are the ones that tend to lust after power. And so the picture that he's painting is that all these other trees have these proper qualifications. They produce things that are beneficial to the community. This proves their character. But the bramble tree, all it can offer is shade, which is actually dishonest because it was too small to offer shade. And ultimately, all it can offer ultimately is, verse 15, threats. Follow my lead, or fire will consume you. Jotham's point is that, isn't it obvious this guy is bad news? Isn't it obvious that he's not fit to leave Israel? He's indicting Shechem for putting this bramble bush in charge, but he's also indicting Abimelech as well. He's using covenantal imagery to do this. Abimelech is likened to a thorn bush. Once again, thorns appearing, a kind of a motif throughout the Old Testament because thorns are what God promised as a curse upon creation when Adam disobeyed and broke the covenant. Abimelech is this thorn bush. He is this symbol of the curse. 
And as such, this thorn bush easily catches fire as well, which is a prophetic foreshadowing of what's to come. So just like the rest of the Old Testament prophets that we see all across the Scriptures, God raises up a prophet to confront the king and to pronounce the coming judgment for Israel's sin. And what is their sin? Verse 17, they dealt unfaithfully with Gideon. He fought for Israel. He risked his life for them. And yet they slaughter his household. And so with this, the the central verse in this entire chapter is verse 20. Jotham pronounces judgment to come. And everything else is an unfolding of this verse. We already know what's going to happen. So what now? Well, I find a bit of humor in the fact that when Jotham finished preaching, he ran away and fled No closing hymn, no benediction, right? No shaking hands, no fellowship meal after the service. He's done his job, he's gone, right? He's out of there, and he flees for his life. And he is scarcely aware of the great power that the Word of God, that resides in the Word of God, that is. So God tells us what He's going to do before He does it. And then thirdly, the fallout begins. What's the fallout? We see the fearful consequences of when God gives us justice. The fearful consequences when God gives us justice. Look at verses 22 through 25. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubbaal might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. Right away we see that Abimelech is king and that he ruled over Israel for three years. Not just Shechem, but Israel. He ruled the nation. So, though Gideon did many great things, the fallout of his sin is that now Israel is paying the price. They have a wicked leader over them. But how does God respond? Here's where God enters the picture Most specifically, in verse 23, he sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and Shechem. If we understand the sovereignty of God, this really is no surprise to us, ultimately. God often confirms and increases evil that's already present as an act of divine judgment. In fact, he does this several times in Scripture. Most notably, he also sent an evil spirit to influence Israel's first real king, King Saul. It's no accident. If you look at the parallels of King Saul and Abimelech, their stories parallel one another. Saul, at the end of of his life, dies in the very same way that Abimelech does. But here, we look at this, this is an act of judgment. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 1. There reaches a point when God gives sinners over to their sin. He abandons them. He gives them what they really want. This is the greatest evil that could fall on any of us. The greatest evil... It's not that we endure times of suffering and difficulty and great loss and pain or even chastening. The worst thing in the world is for God to give us exactly what we want. That's why as Christians, our our prayer ought to always be, Lord, save me from myself. Not my will, but your will be done. 
Here, this evil spirit brings division between Abimelech and the Shechemites. And in verse 25, we read the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush on the roads, as it were. They were robbing passerbyers. Why do they do this? Well, this undermines his kingship. Safety and protection is one of the main things that is expected by a king. Of course, it's no different in our day. How many politicians right, campaign on the promise of, or on the fear of terrorism, or immigration, or lack of health care, or uh, economic disaster, you know? Build a wall, universal health care, um, strengthened military. Fear is what you know, um, undermines a particular rule of a leader. And safety and protection is one of the reasons we have government. And so danger on the roads speaks very ill of Abimelech's rule. And it turns the, up the heat on him. And it puts him on the warpath. Nobody's happy now. Right? It's like a, a deadly poison. Israel is being eaten alive from the inside. God is rewarding evil with evil. He's turning Shechemites against Abimelech, and justice is about to fall. Well, this then leads us to a very long conclusion of this narrative, our fourth and final point. Essentially, kind of capture all this under the heading of God's justice never misses the mark. God's justice never misses the mark. And here, God's justice falls on the uh, Shechemites, and then it falls literally on Abimelech as well. And so, um, although it's all under one heading here of God's justice never misses the mark, let's break it up and read it section by section. First, verses 26 through 33. What happens next? And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in in him. And they went out into the fields and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held the festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? And is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So there's great tension between Abimelech and Shechem. And now Gael enters the picture. Gael gets a little of the harvest wine in him, and he comes a little loose at the mouth, as it were. Is this Abimelech really even a Shechemite? Who is this guy that we should obey him? I could whip him in a fight. He's talking this... this Big game, as it were, of, oh, I'm going to take care and show him a lesson. And through his words, he's sowing division. But another complication arises. Zebul, Abimelech's officer, hears it and rats him out. He goes and he tells Abimelech what's going on. He tells him Gale's plan and he says, okay, you need to strike a blow right now and end this uprising evil spirit is working to sow division through God's, uh, in God's people through the grumblings of Gale. And it's all about to implode. Picking up then in verse 34, let's read through verse 31, 41. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem and four companies. And Gale the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. 
And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gale spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of, of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gale went out to the head, at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aruma, and Zebul drove out Gale and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. Abimelech sets a trap to quell this uprising. Zebul is a part of that trap because Gale and Zebul are standing at the gates when Abimelech starts to charge the city, coming down the hill. And Gale kind of rubs his eyes and says, Do you see what I see over here? Looks like men are coming at us. Zebul's like, What are you talking about? Maybe you need to get your eyes checked. That's not, what, that's not what's going on. That's just the shadows. Then in verse 37, Gail says, No, look, really, I see men coming. And they're at the diviner's oak, which some theologians speculate. He's basically saying they're appearing out of thin air, miraculously. I love how Zebul then responds in verse 38. Where's your mouth now, man? Where are you at? You who wrote these big checks with your mouth now, are you going to cash them? Are you going to go out and fight? Are you going to back up what you said? He taunts him. And by taunting him, he gets him to do exactly what Abimelech wanted, which was to go out of the city, out of the place of kind of refuge, and fight. Of course, it's too late now. It's no real contest. Gale's men are slaughtered. They're driven from the city. It's not even really a battle because of Abimelech's surprise. But it's not over yet. Gale and his men are out of the way now, but the people of Shechem still remain. For remember, this all took place outside the city gates. So then we come to verses 42 through 49. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon them, upon all who were in the field, and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El-Berith. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to the mount, to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what, have you see, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died about a thousand men and women. The people apparently think the crisis is over, so they go back to work in the fields, perhaps. Abimelech hears of this. He thinks it's perhaps another conspiracy against him. So he moves in for the slaughter. He defeats the city. And he comes to this fortress, the Tower of Shechem, which, ironically was in the house of El-Berith, another pagan temple, the place where you know, the money came from, where he was installed as king to begin with. And here then is another instance in the book of Judges of the false gods standing by helplessly as their worshipers were slaughtered. But here, Jotham's parable proves to be prophetic in great detail. The bramble bush himself literally starts chopping wood, starts a fire, and the tower of Shechem is consumed. A thousand.
thousand of the very people that put him into power, he slaughters as evil consumes evil. And he sowed the city with salt, which was an act of holy war, putting a curse on the land. God uses a wicked man to bring judgment upon a wicked people and so fulfilling the prophecy of verse 20 that Jotham spoke. But there's one final act in this story. One more fulfillment that brings everything else into focus. That's found in verse 50 through 57. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called out quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the people of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubael. Our speculation is that perhaps Therese revolted um, against Abimelech too, or maybe it was a satellite city uh, to Shechem. We don't exactly know, but it was about five miles away. So Abimelech moves quickly and intentionally against them. He captures the city. Again, he comes to a tower, a fortress, and again he moves to burn it down with all the people inside of it. But yet again another complication arises. A seemingly random act, which is anything but random considering the sovereignty of God. A random act. He approaches the door of the tower, which was really a dumb move. You know, this harkens back to the story of Sisera in chapter 4 when Jael pierced him with a tent peg. Abimelech is depicted as a dumb animal with, with base instincts, right? When you, when you move towards a tower, the, the first place they would expect you to attack is the door. And so he quickly meets his fate. He too, like Sisera, is killed by a civilian woman. He too is killed with a common household item. He too has his head crushed to the earth. Dale Ralph Davis notes that Abimelech ran into a woman who had a crush on him. And like a frying pan to the head, this mighty king is utterly humiliated by a woman who's not even important enough to be named. A certain woman. It's no surprise then that he asks his armor-bearer to finish the job. Save himself from the embarrassment of the newspapers saying he was killed by a woman. He ends his life the very same way that the first real king of Israel, Saul, will end his life by asking his armor-bearer to kill him, thus committing suicide. And so it's with dripping irony that this story concludes. Israel's first experiment with a kingship proves to be an unmitigated disaster. The one who killed 70 brothers on one stone is himself killed with one stone. Judgment for Abimelech came down upon his head. And in verse 57, the author concludes and says that the God, God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. Intentional play on words here. The seed of the serpent who waged war on the people of God was ultimately undone by the youngest seed of Gideon and through a woman, the head of the serpent is crushed. 
Genesis 3.15. Brethren, the exactness of God's justice is frightening. He never misses the mark. It is a fearful, fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Just a couple of things as we draw this to a conclusion. I argued earlier that this is a story that teaches us about the retributive justice of God. It is a story that warns us that God will render to everyone according to his deeds. But unlike the fall of the mighty Roman Empire, for example, we are to look at this within the context of the Mosaic Covenant. What was the Mosaic Covenant all about? There's lots of purposes and reasons of the Mosaic, for the Mosaic Covenant. There was grace in that covenant, the promotion of the gospel through the priesthood, through the sacrifices, and things of that. But ultimately, the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of obedience. It was a covenant of perfect justice. That common refrain, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. The command of the covenant was do this and live, and it had blessings for obedience, Deuteronomy chapter 28, and curses for disobedience, Deuteronomy chapter 29. Israel was called to obey. That was the term of the covenant, and fully and ultimately when they disobeyed, when they broke that covenant, God brought all of the curses to bear upon them. He cast them out of the land, even though He promised a new and greater and better and unbreakable covenant to come. But the point I want to impress upon you, the purpose of this covenant was to reveal God's justice. That's the, one of the main purposes of the law. That's why the law is the center of that covenant. This is God's perfect standard of righteousness. This is God's promise that every and each sin will be repaid in full with perfect justice. And this is where this story enters our lives. You may think that God does not see your sin. You may think because... God doesn't strike you dead immediately that He doesn't really care, that it's not a big deal to Him. But God has told us beforehand what will happen, just like with Jotham. God has sent us prophets and preachers and teachers to warn us of the fire of His justice to come. And He says, I will judge you according to your words, according to your deeds, according to every thought and intention of the heart. One day, that day is coming where the fire of God's judgment will break out. And in this way, as we hear this, we are to fly to that tower of refuge. We are to seek refuge in that fortress, the one that can never be shaken. We are to cling to that true King who saves us from the wrath to come. In contrast to Abimelech, don't we end every judge this way? In contrast to Abimelech, Christ didn't exalt Himself. He was appointed as high priest by His Father. In contrast to Abimelech, He didn't grasp for power, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, and humbled Himself even to the point of death on a cross. And it's because of this now God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is Christ, not Abimelech, who can truly say, my father is king. Christ is that stone as well, that chief cornerstone. 
that the builders rejected. Jesus himself says in Matthew 21, 44, that the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. No doubt appealing to this verse, uh, this, this story. He is the stone upon which both judgment and blessing come. He is, of course, the true seed of the woman. The one who crushes the enemy's head. The one who humiliates principalities and powers of this age, as we read in Colossians today, putting them to open shame like Abimelech. And you know what's so fascinating about this? Is that here with Jotham, Jotham stands on Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim was the, the mountain of blessing. And yet he delivers a word of curse. Isn't that interesting? The Mount of Blessing became a pulpit of curse. I think in the very same way, we can look at the cross and we can see the judgment of God pronounced upon Christ as a curse fell upon Him, which ends up being a blessing to the world. It's where the curses and the blessings meet. Because Christ bore that curse on our behalf so that we might experience that blessing. And from that mountain of judgment, Mount Calvary, a blessing goes out to all the world. Christ has been cursed for us. This is a mystery and the wonder of the Gospel. This is the blessing and the curse of the Gospel. It is life to those who hear, but it is death and a curse to those who turn away in unbelief. And this is the kindness and the severity of God. How He will render to each one according to His deeds, but in His mercy He provides a way of escape and full forgiveness and cleansing and His Son, Jesus Christ, slain for us. This is the question that we're confronted with today. How will we respond? What was Shechem's great sin? You remember verse 17? They despised God's deliverer. Gideon. Well, in the very same way, God has given us a deliverer the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we despise Him? Or will we come to Him in humility, in faith, in submission, and trust Him with our very lives and our salvation as God's deliverer, as our forgiveness and righteousness, as our hope for the age to come? That's the story before us today. Justice, but mercy. Brethren, let's look to Christ. Amen. Let's pray.